All right, let's go ahead and uh, begin a word of prayer. We're going to be in the book of Amos. Uh, you can turn over to Amos chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 16, Amos 2, 4 through 16. Let's go ahead and begin in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be here. We thank you for your continued sovereignty. We thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We pray that you might help us as we look at this passage in front of us. In Christ's name, amen. Many of you know that the Roman Empire fell in the 5th century A.D., and one of the most direct causes of the fall of the empire was an invasion by the Visigoths. These uh, barbarian attacks that uh, transpired against the Roman Empire were actually nothing new against the Roman Empire. Um, These kinds of attacks, barbarian attacks, had been going on for some time. And so the question is, why did these attacks suddenly become so effective, or why did they succeed against the Roman Empire? Historians have debated, and historians continue to debate, all of the causes of the fall of the Roman Empire. And while the uh, barbarian uh, invasions may have functioned as the straw that broke the camel's back, there were many other things that contributed to the weakening of the empire. And historians talk about all of these mixed causes that kind of came together uh, with the fall. One author explains and says that it was the product of a complicated interaction of numerous components that included changes in the values, wealth, and education, innovations and finances, agriculture and commerce, expansion of of the Senate, enormous increases in citizenship, unrest among classes, problems in maintaining order, and so on and so forth. Other historians suggest that these things helped weaken the Roman Empire. Inflation, political corruption, military spending, high taxes, and even some have suggested climate change. Christians have also long noted the moral decay of the Roman Empire and the corruption of the Roman Empire. For example, one writer notes that homosexuality was rampant in the Roman Empire. Fourteen of the first 15 emperors practiced homosexuality. John MacArthur, in a rather telling statement, says uh, ours, America, is the first society, the first society since the decaying Roman Empire to normalize homosexuality. In today's passage, we are going to hear rather straightforwardly God's anger and his wrath poured out on the nation of Israel. Following a section outlining the guilt of Israel, the Lord will deal out justice in an oracle that prophesies Israel's downfall and eventual destruction. And here's where I want to uh, merge our passage today with this illustration on the Roman Empire. We are trained to think of the rise and fall of nations purely in political and economic categories. Why did this nation rise? Well, here are the political and economic reasons why. Why did this nation fall? Well, here are the political and here are the economic reasons why. If you, for instance, were to attend a history class in almost any college or university across America, and you were to hear about the rise and fall of a nation, you would hear about it nine times out of ten, 99 times out of 100, only in political and economic categories. How many colleges and universities could you attend in America that would say part of what contributed to the fall of this nation was that they turned away from the Lord? You probably would not get that from very many universities at all. Today's passage helps us to think of the rise and fall of nations in a way differently than we are accustomed to in higher education in America. We should be thinking of 
a nation's political decisions and a nation's economic decisions as the fruit of or as the result of their moral and spiritual decisions. I want to read to you um, a rather insightful statement that I came across as I was studying for this message today uh, in one of uh, my commentaries. And the author says this, We are conditioned by our whole inherited cast of mind and our education to look for political, social, and economic causes of the rise and fall of nations and empires. The Bible would have us reform our thinking and seek the cause of things in the moral and spiritual realm upon which all else is consequent. Sin is the hinge upon which destiny turns, affecting a downfall which good policies could never in themselves avert, nor policies, however mistaken, could quite so fully accomplish. To the Bible, history is the arena of moral decisions, moral conflicts, and moral consequences. And we can say, of course, spiritual as well. The same author elsewhere in this same commentary on Amos says this, Amos is in fact continuing his indictment of the people of God by exposing the breakdown of social and personal life which follows from the rejection of truth. I want you to note the importance of the order of what's being said in this statement. The breakdown of society and the breakdown of personal life follows from the rejection of truth. There is first a moral decay, a spiritual decay, and then out of that comes a corrupt society and a corrupt culture, okay? What is the answer to this? Seek the Lord. Individually, seek the Lord. Nations, seek the Lord corporately. Here's what we're saying. We have come to think of the rise and fall of nations purely in non-religious categories, Instead, we need to recognize the sovereignty of the Lord over all things. Let me give you some passages that help us to remind, help to remind us of God's sovereignty over the nations. Job twelve twenty three. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. Psalm two one. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Psalm forty six six. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Acts 17.26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God has sovereignly ordained that you would be a citizen of the United States of America at this particular moment in history. You're here because of God's sovereignty. Let's go ahead and read the passage in front of us today. Amos chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, And the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars. And who was strong as the oaks, I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. 
He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. We are going to use the following uh, outline today. Uh, I have uh, given you, provided you with an outline uh, today uh, in a uh, printout form here. And uh, if you notice the outline, you'll see that it is the same as you see uh, up above you here. And uh, just due to all that was going on in the text, I thought maybe it would help to clarify um, the structure of the passage in front of us. So you can, um, this, this includes all of the Bible text today. You could just use this today as we work through it, um, whatever you prefer. Uh, you'll note that there are two main sections. You have the judgment on Judah, verses 4 to 5. And then you have judgment on Israel, which is verses 6 through 16. These follow the same basic pattern, although you'll see on Israel there's some more sections that we have here. I have underlined some of the key phrases, and I've also numbered some of the things in here because you have sometimes the Lord gives multiple reasons why he's judging them or multiple judgments, so on and so forth, and I have one, two, three, and four in each of these paragraphs or or several of these paragraphs so that you can kind of follow along with uh, where we're going. So hopefully that's a help to you. Uh, as we as we look at the passage today. We're going to begin with judgment on Judah in verses 4 through 5. Verse 4 marks the transition for us from the nations to God's people. You may remember last week that we looked at six oracles and they were all against the surrounding nations. They were not on Judah or Israel. And of course, now that we are going into verse 4 and God begins to uh, pronounce judgment on Judah, this would be no doubt a shocking revelation to the people of Judah. Judah would most likely have listened to the prophecy against the nations in hearty agreement. Yes, that's right. Yeah, Tyre, yep, Damascus, yeah. And then all of a sudden, whoa, 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 wait a second. We were not anticipating that you would come around and start rebuking us. We are your people. We're Judah. We're, we're flawless. We're sinless. This prophecy against Judah takes the same format as the prophecy against the nations. You can see that in the outline that we've handed out. There is a statement of authority. Thus says the Lord. We also have a reason for the judgment or the guilt indicated to us by the statement because. And then uh, we have a uh, judgment itself, and this for Judah is in verse 5, where we see the statement, so I will. In verse 4, we read this Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. Amos, of course, establishes first and foremost the lordship and authority of God. He says that God promises to punish them, and he gives them this reason. There are actually two primary or two main reasons why the Lord is going to punish them. Number one, first, they have rejected the law of the Lord and not kept his statutes. God has given to his people his word. He's given to them his law. He's given to them his statutes, and they have rejected that. Jesus says in Luke 12 and verse 48, but the one who did not know and uh, did what deserved a beating, will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Jesus says, in other words, that the more uh, you have been given, the more you know of the Lord and his word and scripture, and then you reject that, you will be held accountable to an even greater degree than the person who's not received that. Judah is in this situation because Judah was given much resources and the word of God and prophets and the truth and on and on and on. You can have this and you can have this and you can have this and yet they still spurned the Lord. They still rejected God's word and because of that, much would be required from them. Now what is of particular interest here is that Judah's downfall is linked directly to believing in something. You see that in the passage? What is it that Judah believed that is linked to their downfall? Lies. 
in our day and age, lies are about a dime a dozen. Okay? You can go and you can find them everywhere. And lies are being manufactured, packaged, and delivered at what seems like light speed. And all of it is being packaged in pretty boxes with nice wrapping paper. And it is for us as Christians of the utmost priority for for, for us that we know the truth and love the truth and reject the lies. We are fighting against all kinds of lies. We've seen a few of them at our most recent 9 a.m. study. Uh, Lies of Rousseau or Darwinism, standpoint epistemology, existentialism, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Let me translate some of these into a language that we can understand. We are fighting against these kinds of lies. Be authentic to yourself. We are here because of a cosmic accident. Your identity is self-created. You define truth. Have an open mind. Gender distinctions are bad. Do what makes you feel good. The traditional family is oppressive. Sexual expression is fundamental to my identity. People are all either in an oppressor class or an oppressed class, and so on and so forth. We can go on and continue and continue. These lies and more are what characterizes this current cultural moment here in America. Furthermore, this belief in lies, as the text tells us, is accompanied by a rejection of God's word. Verse 4 says they have rejected the law of the Lord and not kept his statutes. This is exactly the warning from Romans 1.25. Because they exchanged what? There's an exchange that takes place. If you are accepting the lie, that means you are rejecting the truth. You know the statement that nature abhors a vacuum, right? Okay. You, you cannot reject truth and live in some sort of a morally or spiritually neutral area. To, re, to reject the truth is to embrace a lie. And that's what Romans one twenty five says. Because they exchanged traded the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I cannot think of a more appropriate charge against this present generation. Think of all the ways in which our own culture and we even ourselves have done this. Think of all of the categories and all of the the places and all of the areas in which we have taken God's word and replaced it with a lie. The Christian in our current world is being squeezed out of areas of influence and community and Christian values don't hold any kind of value anymore. Counseling is no longer for the Christian, but for the secular trained professional. Biology, certainly not for the Christian, uh, the secular trained professional. Sociology is no longer for the Christian, but for the secular trained professional. Reconciliation between parties is no longer for the Christian, but for the secular trained professional. Politics is not for the Christian, but for the secular trained professional. Slowly but surely, our culture rejects the truth and exchanges it for a lie in all of these different categories. And that is the error of Judah in this passage. They did this after, the the text says that they have embraced these lies after their fathers. It, It goes from one generation to the next. One commentator says, this is rather insightful, he says, the popular error of one generation becomes the axiom of the next. The children canonize the errors of their fathers. The children canonize the errors of their fathers. Do we not see this going on in our own culture? What was theory 20 years ago is now 
undeniable truth in our culture. It is becoming firmer and firmer in our own generation. Now, because of these sins, because Judah has embraced these lies, they've rejected the word of God, they've done this in the pattern of what their fathers have done, God says in verse 5 that he will send a fire upon Judah and he will devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Now, if you want to read about this prophecy being fulfilled, you can jot down 2 Kings 24 through 25 because Nebuchadnezzar fulfilled this prophecy against Judah. But this is only the prophecy against Judah. Now, we have the prophecy against Israel. You may recall that the book of Amos, we said, is written to Israel. Okay? This is the primary audience for why Amos wrote this. And now we are finally getting to Israel themselves. And perhaps, like we have thought Judah may have done, Israel has been holding out. They may have thought to themselves, boy, the other nations are bad, and yes, even our sister Judah, (laughs) they're bad as well. But I can't wait to hear all of the positive affirmation that's coming our way, because we are Israel. (laughs) But that would never come. Instead, Israel receives... In this prophecy, the longest list of grievances, longer than all of the six oracles against the nations, longer than Israel's sister Judah, Israel had the greater sin. We see in verse 6, the standard statement of authority, the thus says the Lord, followed by the promise of punishment for three transgressions and for four, okay? Then in verses uh, 6b through 8, we have a long list, and I have numbered this in your handout. Uh, There are four sins, this is uh, 6b through 8, in your handout it says guilt on the side there. Uh, There's a little bit of debate how much you should uh, cut these up. Some say there's more like seven indictments, Um, I've highlighted four of them here and, and categorize some of them together. Um, But let's go through these one at a time. The first sin, you see that in um, 6b there, you see where it says, because they sell the righteous for silver. So the first sin of Israel is that they sell the righteous and the needy for silver and for sandals. They were selling people into slavery to make a profit. The needy or the poor were sold for a pair of sandals, meaning they're sold for nothing. (laughs) I I would sell you if I got a a pair of sandals out of the deal. (laughs) Okay. That's how low they were were, were coming to. They were sold for nothing. They were sold for peanuts. They trampled over the poor in this kind of a way. That's the first sin. The second sin is in verse 7, and it says that they trampled the head of the poor and turned aside the way of the afflicted. This means that they took advantage of the poor. This possibly was happening through the court system. It may be that the wealthy ex- exploited the poor and then bribed or manipulated the courts to their own advantage. That's sin number two. Sin number three is also in verse seven. And it says that a father and a son go into the same girl in order to profane God's name. Now, there are numerous suggestions here as to what exactly the specifics were. Some say that this was a temple prostitute that father and son were going into. Some say that it was a household slave that father and son were going into. Some say a household employee, or some say a daughter-in-law. Whatever the specifics are is not really crucial for us to understand what's going on here. Israel is clearly violating God's sexual ethic, okay? Scripture reserves frequently the heart. If you look through Scripture and you look at all of the sins that God lays out and rebukes for us, Scripture frequently reserves the harshest statements for sexual sins. Um, In this case, 
I want you to see how uh, the Lord words this. What does he say? He says, so that my holy name is profaned. He, he gives the sexual sin, and then no other statement of sin gets this little tagline at the end. But this particular sin gets the tagline, so that my holy name is profaned. One can think of other passages that do the same thing, uh, that refer to sexual sin as an abomination. Or one may think of Romans chapter 1, that highlights the unique nature of sexual sin there and how it specifically is connected to the downfall of a nation in Romans 1. God refers to this particular sin, the, the, the sin of, uh, of, of having a wrong sexual ethic as profaning his name. That's the third sin. The final sin is given to us in verse 8 where we read this, They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. This sin is further abuse of the poor. They were enriching themselves off the poor. You know what garments taken in pledge were for in the Old Testament? You know what collateral is? Okay. It's, it's this guarantee that you're going to not default on your, on your loan. If, if they were to default, then, then they could keep this collateral taken in pledge. You may recall that the Old Testament gave specific guidelines for how this was to happen, that you, if you took a garment from someone for collateral, you were to return that to them at night so that they would have a warm blanket so they wouldn't freeze that night. And so what's going on here is that Israel is enriching themselves off of the poor. Um, They did not follow the Old Testament provision. Um, They took this collateral. They laid down next to altars, which could possibly also refer to sexual immorality. They laid down next to these altars. And they used these garments taken in pledge. Furthermore, they fined people, and they used that money collected through fines to do what? What does it say here? To drink wine. He said to drink the wine of those who have been fined. They were living opulent lives because they had fined all of these people and now they were living um, high lifestyle. Do you you know um, in the Old Testament um, when the Lord in his law, told Israel that they were to enact fines on people for certain things that they had done. Fines in the Bible are never given to the state, never given to the government. The government could not fine you and collect that money and use it for a road project or whatever. In the Bible, fines are always given to the injured party, okay? No fines given to the state or to the government. So the sin of Israel here is that the government is fining people, pocketing the money, and using that to increase their lifestyle, if there was a reason to give someone a fine, then, then it should have been clearly articulated that you stole something or, or caused this to happen, and this goes not to the state, but to this person individually to compensate them for what you had done. Israel sins by taking the money for themselves and living an opulent lifestyle on top of the poor. All in all, if we were to take these this list of sins together. Israel was engaging in gross sins against their own people, sins of exploitation, sins of oppression, and they were experiencing the very implosion of society because of this. 
And while I mention this in the introduction, I want to say this again because it's worth repeating. Uh, the the um, uh, commentator who writes and says this, Amos is in fact continuing his indictment of the people of God by exposing the breakdown of social and personal life which follows from the rejection of truth. They rejected the truth. They rejected scripture. They rejected the Lord. They rejected proper worship and all of the societal implosion and destruction and all of that came because they rejected the Lord. That's the same in any society. First comes rejection of scripture and truth, then comes societal breakdown. This is why any evaluation of the current state of our own country cannot be done merely through the lens of a societal perspective or a political perspective. We must consider the rejection, the prior rejection of truth that has led us to the present state that we're in. And you can do this on any country in the entire world. Now, if this list is not long enough, <laughs> Amos continues on with a list of God's actions that reveal that Israel has spurned God's grace. You see that in the outline that I've given to you there, uh, verses 9 through 11. It's uh, entitled, Spurned Grace. The Lord says, I'm going to punish you because of these four reasons. And oh, by the way, I'm going to also tell you all of the wonderful things I've done for you. And yet you've spurned my grace. What does the Lord say he's done? Well, if you look down at the outline there, you'll see that I've numbered them. The first thing that he does in verse 9, it says that he destroyed the Amorite. Meaning that he cleared out the, the land of Canaan, right? God cleared out the land of Canaan so that Israel could come and inhabit this land. He gave them land and houses and all of these blessings that they didn't work for or anything. He just gave it to them. He took out the Amorites, the Canaanites, said, here you go, here's a whole land for you. They spurned God's grace. The second thing, number two, that the Lord has done was the Exodus. That's in verse 10. He led them out of Egypt. You were in slavery and I led you out of this. The third thing that he does is in verse 11, God gave them prophets and Nazarites from their own people. He gifted them with people who could tell them the truth. He gave them pastors, shepherds. Not only am I going to give you this land and not only am I going to take you out of slavery, I'm also going to give you people who can guide you in the truth and point you to me and, and people who can tell you how to worship And this is how you thank God? This, this is how you say thank you? God was merciful, God was gracious, and yet they were dissatisfied with the truth and they spurned God's grace and God gives one last indictment after this list of things that he has done to just, it's kind of like, uh, you know, that, that last nail in the coffin, okay? In verse 12. We read this. This is, this is how Israel thanks the Lord. You took us out of slavery. You gave us land. You gave us prophets. Okay, we read this. But you made the Nazarites drink wine. This means that they, had, they broke their vow. Okay, Nazarites made a vow not to drink wine. They forced them to break their vow. And you commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. Hey, prophets, stop. Enough. Don't tell us anymore. They heaped up more guilt on themselves because they took all that God had done, all the grace and all the mercy, all the kindness, all the patience, all the love, and they took all of that and they threw it in God's face and said, we're going to silence anyone who speaks truth to us. We do this today, by the way. We do silence. Do, do, do we not want to hear things that only affirm us? How many of you enjoy hearing things that affirm you? I'm going to raise my hand because I do, okay? Okay? How many of you love it when somebody rebukes you? 
Anyone just live for that? <laughs> we don't naturally like this, okay? And, and Israel was, was saying, we're, we're going to just silence that, okay? We, we need that rebuking influence in our lives. Because of all this, God says that he's going to judge them. We read this in verses 13 through 16. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. He who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. God promises that he is going to press them down like a cart full of sheaves. Okay, You, you picture this cart being uh, pulled through a field, and if the cart's empty, it does not make much of an imprint in the ground. But if you were to load this cart up, the, the, the tires leave marks where it is pushed down into the field. And God says, I'm going to push you down like that. I'm going to put my divine weight on you. And so strong will this divine weight be that he lists seven types of people who will be unable to stand, which is a way of saying nobody will be able to stand. And I've numbered these for you uh, in, um, in the outline. In fact, I've actually underlined each group, okay? So who will not be able to stand? The swift, the strong, the mighty, he who handles the bow or the archer, he who is swift of foot, the horseman, he who rides the horse, and the stout of heart. Not, he can't stand, he can't stand, he can't stand, he can't stand. I'm going to be pushing down my weight. They won't be able to stand, won't be able to stand, won't be able to stand. It's a, it's a way of saying nobody will be able to stand before me. Did this ever come true? It did, yes. When did this come true? 722 B.C. 722 B.C., the fall of Israel. If you want to write this down in the margins, you could write down where this is detailed to us in 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17. What does this remind us? That God's word is true. And God fulfills what he says he's going to fulfill. I mentioned in the opening message of Amos that we may come to this book, maybe not everyone, but some of us, many of us, most of us, I don't know, may come to this book and think that the application or the relevance is somewhat removed from us here in 2022. I, can't, I can read this, I can understand the historical events, but I can't quite grab how this is relevant. I'm not saying that it's not relevant. I just can't figure out how to grab what's relevant out of this particular passage. And so what, what I'm going to do here as we um, look at some application, I did this uh, last week. And basically what I did, I don't know, I'm not saying I'll do this throughout Amos, but um, uh, I might, it just kind of depends from week to week. But um, for this time of application, I'm going to just give us a mixed bag of application and universal principles from the passage. It's just going to be a whole, those two things. So, so some of these things that you'll see up here that, that I'll put is, is going to be just a universal principle that we can extract from the text. Um, and some of them will be, and all of them will be applicational in one sense, but some of them will be more applicational directly to, to where we are. So, um, let's look at these one at a time. I have seven of them. The first one is this, God judges all nations. God did not make any exceptions for Israel. In fact, Israel's list of sins far exceeded the nations, implying that they had the greater sin. 
No nation will be exempt from God's judgment. No nation that's ever existed in history will somehow be swept under the rug and God will ignore dealing with them. You may remember that we said this last week. God will have justice on every individual person. Either you will pay that in a place called hell for all of eternity where the Lord's wrath will be poured out on you, unending, or Christ will pay for that punishment. Christ will pay the hell that you deserve on the cross. He did this. Okay? There is no such thing as a world where God sweeps sin under the rug, overlooks sin. God will deal with it, either on you or on Christ. That's number one. Number two, to whom much is given, much will be required. God gave Judah and Israel much, and much was required. Jesus says this, as we saw in Luke 12, 48. Let me, um, let me issue a pastoral warning here to us. One of the greatest tragedies in Christianity is an individual who comes inside the fellowship of the local church who is not regenerate, who never repents and believes on Christ, and week after week, month after month, year after year, sits and hears the preaching of the word, knows scripture, knows the Bible, knows the truth. In Luke 12, 48, Jesus said, if you didn't do what you were supposed to do, but you didn't know, you're going to get a beating, but it's going to be a light beating. If you didn't do what you were supposed to do, and you knew it, you're going to get a harsher beating. Do not presume upon the Lord's grace. Sitting in a church building, sitting under preaching, having parents that are Christians, none of that means you are a believer in Christ. To be a believer in Christ is to repent and believe on Christ. One of the most dangerous things you could do is to sit here at Crossview week after week after week after week and be unregenerated and know it and try to play this game. Don't mess with God. He's merciful. Run to him. Run to him instead. He has grace. He will pardon you. You are not... You... you are not a worse sinner than, than God has enough grace to deal with. I kind of worded that a little strange, okay? <laughs> you, how about this? You can't outsin God's grace. And God can forgive you. But to whom much is given, much will be required. Individuals who grow up in the church and know the gospel and memorize scripture, yet reject Christ, will receive a harsher judgment than the pagan islanders who have never heard of the gospel. Don't take what you have lightly. And by the way, I, I'm available. There are many people in the church available to preach the gospel to you, to share the gospel with you. That's number two. Number three, God takes oppression seriously. God is serious about oppression and injustice in every direction. There's a reason. This is a good thing uh, in America why lady justice is blindfolded. Okay, Now, whether that's always carried out or not is another thing. But there's a reason that lady justice is blindfolded. 
When I say that God abhors oppression and injustice in every direction, I want to bring to your mind uh, a Bible verse that talks about this that may be slightly countercultural for us, and that is Leviticus 19.15, which says, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. What this means is you should not corrupt justice. We, we all know that, we, that you ought not corrupt justice for the rich person. Okay? The Bible says don't corrupt justice for the poor person either. Don't, don't be unjust in any direction, whatever that is. Always stand with the truth. If the, if the rich person did what was wrong, then the rich person deserves the justice that they deserve. And if the poor person does what's wrong, the same thing. It doesn't matter which direction this goes in. We are to judge in righteousness. We are not to take into consideration when we are making these judgments someone's social status, their bank account, the size of their estate, or their ethnicity. All of that is to be left at the door. It is just as much a violation of justice to be partial to the poor as it is to be partial to the rich. Although throughout history, most of the time, it's the rich oppressing the poor, but it can go in the other direction too. And it has and it does go in the other direction. Number four is this, love the truth, reject lies. This comes from verse four where uh, the Bible says that the lies led Judah astray. The world is offering to us all sorts of alternatives to Scripture. Lies are designed to be appealing. We know that our own hearts are deceitful, and we need to compare everything that we hear to something that is unchanging, something that is true. That is Scripture. Scripture is true. Filter everything through the Bible. What's your favorite theologian says? What your favorite pastor says, what your favorite politician says, what anybody says. Everything that I say every single Sunday ought to be filtered through Scripture. And if I say anything that does not hold up to Scripture, discard it. And by the way, come and tell me, please. I'm serious about that. Um, I, I, invite, I invite all of you. I'm not above Scripture. No man is above Scripture. I'm, I'm not claiming that I... If I've gone astray, then please tell me. Love the truth, reject lies. Number five, put off sexual immorality. Considering that today's passage says that sexual immorality equals profaning the name of the Lord, we of all people as Christians ought to flee it. Let me give us a reminder here. The put off and put on thing, right? Okay? There is, for this particular no or this put off, there is an abundance of yes in good and righteous sexuality. God has given us this particular gift. He has given to us good desires, not bad desires, good desires. And he has also created a way in which those desires can be fulfilled. So this is not just a stop that, stop that, stop that, stop that, stop that. It's also a Recognize the good provisions that the Lord has given and provided us with. Number six, do not presume upon God's grace. Israel was given an embarrassment of resources and provisions, and they squandered it and threw it back at the Lord. We likewise have been given an embarrassment of riches and resources and provisions. Do you realize more than any other culture that has ever walked on this planet, we have more access to God's word than anyone. You can, if you don't understand a verse, okay, 
there are entire dissertations and entire libraries of books. You could, there's more material than you have time in your lifetime to go through. Okay? And all of it is accessible to you at the push of a button. Okay? We have an embarrassment of resources. Do not squander it and do not throw it in the Lord's face. And the final point of application is this. Rejoice in this. God used the greatest act of oppression and injustice the world has ever known to bring us salvation in Jesus Christ. The book of Amos does touch a lot on the way that Israel was exploiting their own people. And one, we could walk away from this book and and see all of that, but I want us to also see beyond Amos. And I want us to see the fact that God took and did something very unexpected. Who would expect that God's greatest display of divine grace to the human race would come to us through an act of injustice? This is God's way turning the apparent victories of his enemies into his greatest triumph. <laughs> you, you thought you got me there? Watch this. You thought that was, no, I'm victorious. You thought this? This is the gospel. The gospel is that God took the greatest injustice. Nobody can claim, by the way, that they have been wronged more than Jesus Christ has been wronged. Okay? And by the way, you, nobody has ever, you will never have to forgive another human being more than Christ had to forgive you. Whatever anyone has done to you, you need to forgive. You will never have to forgive as much as Christ has forgiven. God has taken the greatest act of injustice and he has turned it on its head and brought salvation to us through that. This is the gospel. And we are to repent and believe on this gospel. Lord, we rejoice in this truth that we have seen in Scripture today. Our hearts rejoice in the gospel and its sufficiency and in the fact that you did something completely unexpected and you took the greatest act of injustice, turned it on its head, and brought to us salvation in Christ. We rejoice in this and ask that you might help us, those who may be here, if there be anyone here who does not know Christ as Savior, I pray that they would repent and believe on him today. We pray this in his name. Amen.